I am glad that in this administration we have increased the amount of money for handling the problem of dangerous drugs sevenfold. It will be $600 million this year. This is one area where we cannot have budget cuts because we must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one, the problem of dangerous drugs. Hello, welcome along to episode four of Dad Does Drugs. Thank you for downloading and thanks for the interaction, the correspondence on Twitter and things this week. I will be introducing myself first to introduce this week's episode. So I recorded a kind of stream of consciousness burble that I was thinking all about my relationship with the police, the police's relationship with the war on drugs, and I did all of that on a, a sunny afternoon in the Easter holidays this week when I was at home with my children. So you'll kind of hear me pottering around the house and kids coming in and out of that, but um, it, it sort of works. I've just listened back to it, so and I think it'll articulate things better than me rehashing it now. Uh, so I will introduce myself in just a moment. Uh, a couple of things that I thought I would mention. It feels like... Um, there are news stories bubbling all the time that seem relevant at the moment. Um, this week I noticed on Twitter that Dream Market, the uh, illegal marketplace on the dark web where I bought the drugs that you heard me getting uh, tested at the loop in episode two, um, is uh, closing down. So I don't know why that is, but uh, it's intriguing that um, all of this stuff is current and happening right at the moment. Uh, so if you're thinking, oh, that sounds easy, I'll go and buy drugs from Dream Market as well. Well, it looks like you can't. It's about to shut down uh, at the end of this month. Um, there's another news story really relevant to the whole subject that we're talking about today with the police and how they police drug taking and whether we think we need drug policy reform and drug law reform in this country. A news story that will have fallen under the jurisdiction of the police officer I speak to because he's Hampshire Constabulary uh, in Southampton. Four cannabis dealers put in prison uh, after an operation to find them all. They got quite a lot of cannabis and quite a lot of money found at their flat but they were selling cannabis only to Southampton University students. And I just think, uh, was it worth all of that money to shut down that? What harm was being caused? When you hear him talk later about how the police deploy resources, uh, after austerity they don't have many resources and they have to choose where the money goes. And uh, he judges it on how much harm is being caused. And I think, well, how much harm was being caused by some university students smoking marijuana? Hmm one to ponder on. I'll also mention the police officer I speak to uh, was slightly time pressured as he told me just as I arrived, already a bit nervous about speaking to a detective superintendent, uh, that he had a toothache and a dental appointment in an hour's time and so could I keep it brief? <laughs> no pressure, no, no extra uh, nerves about then a large powerful police officer also having a bad tooth. Hmm. Uh, right, uh, I'll, I'll crack on and introduce myself. So this is uh, Easter holidays, uh, Dad in charge at home, and um, whilst the kids are playing with their friends in the garden, I'm wandering around talking about illegal drugs. Here we go. What sort of a relationship do you have with the police? From memory, I've had two run-ins with them when... 
I was 20, maybe 19, and faked the expiry date on my young person's rail card. My parents, my mum I think specifically, got a phone call from the British Transport Police uh, because I got found out, I think, when I handed it over the counter at Birmingham New Street Station on my way to a football match one Saturday. The cashier spotted it and said, I'll just have to go and see a supervisor. I manfully ran away and went and bought my ticket from a different kiosk, paying full price. Got on the train, went to the football match, forgot all about it. Then my mum received the phone call from the British Transport Police uh, because obviously uh, I'd left the rail card behind with my name on it and I had to go in and have a stern talking to from an officer at Leeds Station, I believe. Uh, then flash forward uh, at least 10, maybe 15 years. I'm in my mid-30s and I go to buy a new car, uh, second-hand, from a place in West Sussex. I live in Hampshire and being a disorganised dingbat, I didn't arrange the insurance to transfer over in advance of going to pick up the car so I'm driving back in a new car that I've just paid like three grand for or something a second-hand Skoda and uh, I drive past a police car that's got number plate recognition and that uh, flags up that I've got no insurance and so I get pulled over by a policeman and it was a £200 on the spot fine and he wouldn't let me drive away obviously it's just illegal to drive there's no kind of oh, we'll let you off with a caution so he had to wait until I suffered the ignominy of phoning my father-in-law my wife was away at the time I think on a work trip so I had to phone my father-in-law to come and pick me up and drive me home because his insurance would cover him to drive another car <sighs> My, I was the named driver on my wife's policy, so mine didn't cover it, and I had to be driven home by him. So I had to wait in a lay-by for 25 minutes with the police officer just to make sure I wasn't going to get back in the car and drive back. Uh, so I don't have a particularly bad criminal record, and uh, and I have a reasonable amount of respect for the police. I don't have any problem with them. I'm happy they're there, and they do a great job. I do remember from my sixth form sociology days, uh, my hip, cool sixth form sociology teacher, who was differentiated from the normal teachers of the other subjects by the fact that they were all Mrs. Clunas, Mr. Lambert, and he was Keith, and the female sociology teacher was Jan. Anyway, Keith talked a lot about deviancy. That seemed to be all the things that sociologists back in the day would study and so we talked about pool hustlers and uh, pimps and guys trying to have sexual liaisons in toilets and one point he made about the law and deviancy and us as social beings is that if you put a police person in a room then everybody else clams up about everything really as they panic and I think I do feel that. I don't have any real problem with what I see as victimless law-breaking. So 
he made the example in the sociology lesson that you know if you've got a couple of guys chatting at a barbecue in the summer um, oh, I pulled a nice one uh, Dave you know that that window that my little boy smashed with his cricket ball well told the insurance company that I uh, put a ladder through it and uh, yeah I've got them all replaced nice um, well you don't say that kind of thing uh, you don't ex- explicitly talk about your um, insurance fraud when you've got um, a copper stood next to you having a beer and a hot dog and I get that I feel quite comfortable in talking about and and don't really feel any great moral problem with mild law breaking if I look back over my life um, even when I was a child I remember going shoplifting with my sister when my mum was in yeah when my sister and I were young and living in Northamptonshire and we used to go to uh, Wellingborough once a week so my mum could go to the Sainsbury's in the Armdale Centre me and my younger sister Liz would spend that time when my mum was doing the weekly shop uh, hovering outside hanging out in the uh, main concourse of the Arndale Centre where there was a big wooden dragon for children to play on and we would say oh can we play on the dragon can we play on the dragon Um, but in reality we would be we would be stealing toffees from the pick and mix in John Menzies next door to Sainsbury's and uh, then going out to sit on the wooden dragon to eat them Uh, we did this week in week out for years and they've got caught so maybe that was the start of a fractured relationship between uh, what was morally the right thing to do and what you could get away with by being a bit devious and uh, fibbing about it Um, interesting use of the word fibbing as opposed to lying and conniving, being devious. Then uh, flash forward past the incident with the transport police and the faked young person's rail card, but before the driving without insurance. And when I was about 23, 24, I had a girlfriend, and this is specifically uh, relevant for this uh, episode, yeah, I had a girlfriend who I used to, who I met in a nightclub, uh, God's Kitchen, used to go clubbing with, and when we went clubbing, took ecstasy, and I obviously at that point, I don't know why I decided to, but anyway, I arranged to buy off a friend of hers a hundred ecstasy pills at three pounds each, spent three hundred quid on drugs, and then they arrived in the post from her friend, packaged up in some cassette cases and I then proceeded to obviously use some of them, give some to my friends and sell the rest. I had a regular customer at the place I worked at the time, I'd sell him and his partner some every week for several weeks and also I went into nightclubs including the now defunct home in Leicester Square which is a really big uh, super club uh, in the early 2000s I remember selling them there now I look back and realise that any one of those 
things could have got me banged up for years and years or got me beaten up uh, or could have ended tragically but I never got caught and you just I've forgotten all about it really I never thought about doing it after that I never you know, split up with the girlfriend never thought about buying in bulk again and doing it again and um, I don't feel great about doing it but also uh, I don't feel terrible about it either because they were what I said they were they worked and um, no one got hurt so um, funny though today in this episode to have gone to talk to quite a senior police officer who works as the drug lead for Hampshire Constabulary so I was nervous talking to him because although I, I didn't directly confess to anything in his company just because I was nervous about what would happen I didn't know maybe he would have to arrest me um, but if he listens to more of the podcast obviously he'll realise that I'm admitting to things which have been breaking the law uh, so I was a bit twitchy about it um, but I think it went pretty pretty well and I was able to ask him some quite interesting uh, questions but I suppose it's interesting for you, I to think about your relationship to the legality of drugs and the, what, why do I feel it's okay to break the law in this area I went on a speed awareness course recently and I now drive to the speed limit because it's reasonably fresh in my mind and and I just think I don't want to hurt anyone and I realise that driving just a couple of miles an hour over a 30 or a 40 massively increases the danger and all that information that they give you in that course has made me think twice about breaking that law I wonder what equivalent things there might be without giving someone a criminal record because obviously I didn't get points on my licence, I didn't get punished uh, for the speeding, which I felt was a bit unjust. I did 35 in a 30 in a quiet Yorkshire Dales village. Um, so maybe there's an equivalent thing. Ooh, okay, where is it? Maybe there's an equivalent sort of uh, legal harm reduction uh, type strategy for being involved in, in drugs. I mean, there are cannabis warnings, aren't there? And there are just tickings off and things like that. But if we wanted to actually reduce the incidence of things without criminalising people, maybe there needs to not be the stigma and the, the big stick criminal punishment thing at the end of it all. Hmm. Food for thought, I suppose. Uh, I'm not quite sure if I've got the answers, but uh, I did get lots of answers from Detective Superintendent Scott McKechnie for this week's episode. And afterwards, I will have a chat with my 13-year-old son again, Credence, and he wants to be a police officer, he thinks, at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see what he thinks. Uh, here we go. Right, great. Um, in a police station with Detective Superintendent Scott McKechnie, serious and organised crime at Hampshire Constabulary. Hello, Scott. Yeah. Hi there, Bob. Um, so uh, that sounds senior. What sort of uh, role is Detective Superintendent? What do you do? Uh, so my, well, my role is I'm in charge of, of our department, which um, investigates serious and organised crime at the highest level in Hampshire. 
Um, so that's cross-border criminality across a range of, of crime types. Um, but also I've got teams to look at, you know, cybercrime, economic crime, uh, money laundering, that type of thing. So, But also, you know, as my, in my role as a senior detective, you're also trying to influence the rest of the police force and how we take a sort of bottoms-up approach to, you know, from that local policing approach to serious organised crime, because ultimately it affects people in local communities organised crimes in different ways, often it's hidden, but um, so it's trying to, to, to make our officers aware of what, what are the signs that somebody could be involved in organised crime or getting involved in organised crime, because it is it's a bit of a purging society and people are making a lot of money out of it. Right. And have you always been a policeman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, joined, I joined the police quite young and, and spent a long, long time working in Scotland um, for the first uh, 15 plus years. And I've been in Hampshire for the last 10 years. And in terms of the landscape of serious and organised crime, is Hampshire different to the rest of the country? Would it be different if you were in Merseyside or Manchester? Yeah, it would be different. It would be different, but fundamentally it's the same. Um, fundamentally it's the same, the same methodology used by a lot of crime groups. Um, so they, they, they probably share that amongst each other. So, yeah, you know, spent a bit of time in Glasgow, you know, so working in organised crime and so organised crime in Glasgow is a bit different to, to other places. But, yeah, so, you, you know, you will have that sort of urban-rural effect. And I suppose a, 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 a council like Hampshire, you've got a bit of both. Yeah. You've got that rural and that urban. We've got a couple, you know, two or three sort of reasonably-sized cities. Not the size of London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow. But, so, yeah, so we, we are, you know, we are impacted probably by bigger organised criminal gangs, perhaps, in some of the big cities. Um, but at the same time, we have got plenty of our own. I've read a bit recently uh, a book by an ex-undercover policeman working in, in the drugs trade, Neil Woods. So I learned, just through reading that book, a bit more about what an organised crime gang operates like and what, what they probably look like. And that book was written about his experiences, which were quite a few years ago. So uh, I'm sure now, in 2019, it's, is it like a business or is it like a nasty, violent gang? Yeah, yeah, it's funny actually. I, I was at a County Lines conference up in London not so long ago, and there's a guy called, who I think is an excellent speaker, uh, Gwyneth Slaley, who works for, for a charity called Crying Sons. Um, and he talks about addiction and how, you know, and he talks, he, he breaks it down quite simply. And, you know, for me, I, I can't disagree with him in any way. He talks about, you know, your chief executive and your, your next layer of, 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 of uh, staff that are working for the chief executive and how the chief executive won't find himself anywhere near you know, the actual doing. And yeah. I suppose it's, it, it's the same in my experiences. You do have the hierarchy in, in organised crime groups and it is, it's a business model. It's about, ultimately, it's about making money yeah. uh, and making lots of money. All of them do for, for a little effort sometime. And those that are at the top of organised crime gangs will probably find themselves a long way away from, from the drug dealing, the money, modern slavery, the, you know, the fraud, the, the money laundering that's involved in it. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, they are reaping the benefits and, and they, are, they are very sophisticated, I have to say. And they become more sophisticated and they have become more sophisticated over the last 10, 15 years by... You know the uh, you know the onset of the internet, digital digital technology, you know different different means to communicate. So so they do become and, and they're very agile, yeah. and very very good at what they do. Uh, unfortunately for us, and society is that, um, but but they take often take advantage of really vulnerable people, and that's where you know we have to focus our attention is in that harm the harm they're causing. Yeah, 
And does all their money come from drugs? No. Is that the biggest income? Well, yeah, probably it's one of the biggest income. Another really big area around organised crime now is, is fraud. Okay. Um, you know, cyber enable fraud, cyber dependent fraud. Right. Uh, it's a cyber dependent uh, uh, crime. So, you know, when you look at the, the serious organised crime strategy, which was launched in November, which is worth a read, Bob, uh, <laughs> you know, especially for this, yeah. you know, it breaks it down the impact of, of, of that and, and you know, 4,600 organised crime groups across the UK and and what the, the sort of multi-agency response should be to, to that because it's a home office document and the, the impact that, that fraud, cyber has on, on society and the, the British economy, ultimately. Because I've you know, read an argument from uh, a number of people for legal regulation of drugs. One of the key uh, argue, arguments that people put forward is that then it takes all of that money out of the hands of organised criminals and you know, estimates that I've read between £7 billion and £10 billion a year made from drugs, which obviously can fund all sorts of you know, security and violence and what have you to protect that industry, which you know, just makes, for, makes your job even harder because they've got all that money to fund either buying people off or... or Technology and, and weaponry and, and what have you, but I, I also understand that the criminals, I would have thought, they're just in it for the money. They're, you know, they don't really want to cause harm. Uh, maybe one or two psychopathic ones do, but uh, so if you took that money out, would they would they find other criminal ways to make their money, or would they have to do legitimate things to make money? I suppose that's the, that's the, the million dollar question, isn't right. it? Right. Um, I mean, whether whether you make drugs legal or not, it's not it's not a it's not a matter for me to answer. No, it's got to come from central government. I steer there. How how do you regulate that? I mean, that's a question. I've been involved in I was involved in a drug squad uh, a number of years ago um, where we were tackling people who were involved in using heroin and crack. And you know, <clears throat> how do how do you regulate that? I mean, that's the thing. How how do you regulate people using? Drugs, because you know, and how do people, you know, does somebody walk into a chemist and say, "Can I have, you know, a small amount of heroin?" Because I fancy that today. You know, I, I just don't know how we'd, we'd get to a point where where you regulate that, um, especially for the higher, you know, your class A drugs, even the class B drugs. It's like, you know, how, how do you then control people's behaviour? You know, and um, and I don't know how they do that. You see, I, see, I watched a TV show about. Canada and how they have areas that, that, that they have people come in to use, you know, lawfully use controlled drugs. Mm. And I'm just not sure how, how we would c- c- keep control of that in, in, in the country. Would there always be another illicit market created, uh, which is different to the ones regulated? I don't know. I, th- I think that that's the thing is that the business models are so agile that, that they probably will find another route to find some other kind of drug that's not regulated and um, you know so I just wouldn't have an answer to that I just don't know how to do it but they yeah you're right they're in it for the money Uh, ultimately do they want to cause harm Uh, probably not directly want to cause harm but they must realise that what they're involved in causes harm Hmm. you know so you you can't get away from you know taking the moral high ground yeah but I don't want somebody to overdose on drugs I want you know as soon as you get involved in in peddling class A drugs then you're causing harm and, and that's the reality because you see people it ruins people's lives you know they're back to what Gwenton said back to their addiction how, how does somebody become addicted to drugs I don't know 
Um, I don't have the answer. I'm not a medical professional, but there's something in the, the effects of that drugs that causes them to need more to get that escapism. Well, I used to talk to a lot of drug users in, in my younger days uh, when I was a DC about their drug use, and um, and and they would describe that feeling of you know this takes away your problems and you forget about your problems and you get into that mental state where you've forgotten uh, all, all the issues that are going on in your life. Take a little bit of cannabis after your heroin and it makes it uh, extend it a little bit. And then you want more. Mm. You want to have that feeling again. So that is harm. So what happens anything causes chaos in that person's life more, more often than not if they can't control that addiction where they have to start stealing from family stealing from shops, getting involved in the criminal justice system. You know, there's, there's lots of knock-on effects to that individual. So, you know, those involved in, in, in at the top of organised crime gangs have got to understand that, you know, the effects that they have. But again, you've got others that are involved in, you know, the middle market, uh, cocaine, you know, for example, which is a different market. And there's a lot of professional people out there who'll be using cocaine and other recreational drugs. And uh, so, so, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. One of the big things that seems to be in lots of press releases from the police and lots of news stories at the moment is these county lines gangs. So a, a, a nice home counties place like Hampshire uh, has got these stories then of, of gangsters using kids, basically, from fairly crappy backgrounds and luring them in and then using them the way I see it, almost like as a human shield. So again, they're protected, like you said, the chief executives are in London, but they've got kids doing their their dealing in in small towns. But it feels like it's, I'm sure, not the kids' fault that they get lured into it. So how do you you police that? So so first, the county lines does affect us. Uh, It does affect us quite... um, but again, it's a business model, as you say, Bob. It's exactly the same sort of business model. You know, we're probably affected county lines mostly by London. So those drugs. Um, you know, do we have gangs in Hampshire? I don't think we have gangs in Hampshire. Um, but you know, we we could have. We are affected by gangs clearly, and that's probably by county lines and the, the sort of associated violence sometimes that comes with that um, and harm. There's a lot of harm comes with. But I suppose the county lines are, are probably. They're just filling a marketplace that maybe would have been, you know, has, has the marketplace changed in terms of the demand? Because it all comes down to demand. Mm. The demand for drugs, for people, drug users in a, in a place want to buy drugs, especially. So, county generally is crack, cocaine, and heroin. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's fueled by the demand locally. So, it just, so they've filled that marketplace. How has it filled that marketplace over the years? Who knows? Has it been the use of violence? Has it been pushing other people out? Has have other people been, you know, put in jail and then they've they've taken their opportunity? But county lines is not a new thing. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been around for a long time. Um, and a county line is effectively the phone line. You know, so the the the, the drugs market is controlled by a phone, and that phone will then have access to probably all the drug users in, in the local town. And you know, how do they, how do they communicate with them? Send their bulk text messages, and then they get communication back. And you know, where, where is that phone? So who who's controlling that phone? Is the person who's controlling the drug supply? And that could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. It could be up in the north of Scotland, for all you know. It could be in a nice part of Cornwall, but they're, they're running the business for wherever the phone is. And that's how you know, I was talking earlier about how technology's changed the way yeah. the drugs you know, The old and for the public, the public does it affect the public? 
it's probably a little bit hidden from the public because mm. you know the, the in the days gone by the people walking up and knocking on someone's door and that, that repeated calls to the door buying drugs doesn't really happen anymore because it draws attention to the drug dealer uh, because people are alive to that so why are so many people going to that address right. um, like you know it's like a shop because it's effectively what it is it's a shop to buy drugs whereas now they're being a bit more sophisticated around that so the drugs line the county line will be wherever and then it will then somebody who's on that line will then direct someone else to them go and most likely deliver drugs so yeah you'll see I suppose I'm different because I've got a bit of an eye for it you know because of, of the experience I've got but you, you'll be walking about towns and I, I'll, I'll identify there's somebody who looks like they're just about to, um, to, to to sell some drugs or you know drug users hanging about waiting for somebody to turn up to buy drugs yeah. and probably from the public perspective does that affect him? Probably not um, you know, because it is, it's, these these meetings take place in remote places, and it generally it, does, it doesn't affect the public. But you know, at the same time, we as the police would encourage the public to make us aware of. I've just seen what was a drug deal outside the toilets in Fratton Park, for example. You know, and you know, or the Tesco near Fratton Park, or you know, that type of thing, so that we can then focus our attention on trying to intercept those those, those drug users. But back to your point about uh, the vulnerable people, yeah, counties do exploit children and adults who are vulnerable mm. in two different ways. So um, they will they will undoubtedly target people who are vulnerable in terms of the the, the childhood they possibly had um, and. But I suppose there's a, there's a balance to be struck there because some children, young adults, will get involved. I'm not saying young children are involved in this because they like the money. Mm. Uh, they like the, the getting the, whatever they get, 500 pounds for doing, a, for doing a, a run. But then what they find is they then get themselves controlled by that county line. So they might like the money initially, uh, and but that's that's a lure. That's just a grooming technique of, of what they do is they lure you in by grooming you. Um, so that could be a child who's living, you know, and we, we speak a lot about adverse childhood experiences um, and how that adversity in childhood can affect children and make them more vulnerable, and make them more susceptible to that grooming. So you know, once once they've had that initial five hundred pounds, and then suddenly, well, I'll give me five hundred pounds. That was a bit, a little bit extra, or you've lost a bit of the drugs, and they'll, they'll create some sort of ruse. And then they've got control yeah. of that child or that adult through some kind of debt bondage, and then, or they'll exploit them in other ways. You know, saying that, well, you know, you know, people that are close to them, you know, we'll, we'll go and you know assault your mum or assault your. I'm not saying that always happened, but some way in which they then control that individual so that it's very difficult for them to get over. Mm. And that, that's that's we have to deal with the effects of. And that's that's with children and adults. So yeah, that's children. Undoubtedly, children being used uh, to run county lines and deal in local areas. And you obviously don't want to arrest those children. I mean, they're not your target, are they? You, no. you, so, but how do the police try and not put those kids at risk? Because I'm sure they're. Um, although they don't want to get arrested, I'm sure they're more afraid of the people yeah. higher up who'll beat yeah, them well, up or what have you. And that, that's the danger, is that debt bondage. Um, and yeah, you're right, we, we, we don't want to see children involved in criminality, but what choice have we got? What the public expect us to do when you're not sure of someone's age? Yeah. When you look at somebody who's, it turns out to be 15, but they look 19, or it turns out mm. to be, you know, even, even though they're a child involved in, in the trafficking of Class A drugs, 
So, so generally, it's hard for their officers to sort of make that assessment on somebody straight away. So, yeah, they will be arrested, unfortunately. And I suppose, I suppose they probably realise the consequences of what they've been involved in a, a little bit as well and what they've been drawn into. But what we'll then do is make make a really clear vulnerability assessment of that individual while they're in custody, and how can we then work with that individual with their partners to divert them away from the activity they've been involved in. So, so the. The Mayor of London's funded a team uh, through St Giles Trust up in London, which is yeah. called the Rescue and Response. I don't know if you've heard Yes, that. I think I've heard a yeah. speaker so, on so, that. So, so we now, if we've got children that are from London, or young adults actually up to the age of 24, um, involved in that, we arrest them, we identify this. Uh, they're from a, a, a London county, then we'll contact team and that, that team will then be involved and repatriating them back to whatever borough they're from and then work on how can we intervene with that child to try and or that young young adult to develop them away from the activity they've been involved in. Because uh, ultimately that that's that's what we, we, we're not here people we're here to um, enforce the law that's that's one of our public duties and, and you know the public expects us to mm-hmm. and they should expect us to as well. Um, but at the same time you know, we don't want to see uh, children, especially in, in prison, most definitely not. So we've got to try and find ways upon which we can try and divert that child. And that comes, and, and you know, fundamentally, drug use is, is it's not a society issue, but it's, a, it's an issue that all society then can talk about. So you look at the serious and organised crime strategy, it talks about a whole system approach and how, you know, so everybody's got a part to play, mm. you, know, you know, whether it's a, a, a youth club, whether it's a school, whether it's a GP surgery, a health, you know, a health visitor, and it's all about looking for those early signs uh, that a child, you know, can become vulnerable, and often that's going missing for the first time, and try to find ways upon which we can intervene at an early stage. And, and we are, as, as a force, we're working closely with partners just now to try and, you know, find ways upon which we can intervene early to divert a child away from getting involved in, you know, criminality, especially. Because it's a road you don't you don't want children to go down, and, and you spoke about your 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 teenagers, you know, and I'm sure you you it's important to try and educate them about what what, what are the dangers. Yeah. Um, well, a, a harm reduction is something I've read a lot about, and one of the major harms of. Uh, illegal drugs is that they're illegal and a criminal record's a terrible thing to get so you know even if you just get caught with with something and then you've got the criminal record that is a that is a big harm on on, yeah. your, on your life isn't it for you know, a good while and your prospects yeah it's, you know because it does have have a big effect on you and, it's, and, and the thing is that's why you know policing towns you know we have lots of it links into harm reduction. You know, we not everybody ends up in court. You know, so we'll try things like community resolutions or, or, or of court disposals to try and give children, especially, a chance to divert themselves away so they don't end up with a criminal record. Right. Um, but yeah, it does have a big effect on you. Future employment, university, travelling abroad, you know, all these things can can have an effect on you. Um, but but our, 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 we have we have to. Because it's illegal and first of all, but we're not, you know, we, we try and find alternative means if somebody's willing to, you know, seek help and and mm-hmm. and, and also it's, a, it's an opportunity for us of, to try and divert somebody away, you know, from being involved in drugs because, you know, if they, like, if they, if they try a, a, you know, cannabis at twelve or thirteen, which, which sounds horrendous, but unfortunately is reality. Um, you know what's next for them? Is that the gateway into uh, to stronger drugs? I, I don't know. Yeah. 
And um, Peter's usually tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the moment, I feel like my son is just too interested in other things, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and you know yeah. what have you. But he's very aware that at school drugs are talked about, and so you know, what, what, by to educate them or no, no, just you know, you know, just you, you just hear that other kids are smoking weed down that alley after what school. Uh, he's thirteen, so he's year nine, yeah. And so, yeah, I suppose part of my reason for doing this podcast is you don't want to, you don't want your teenagers to the only thing that they're hearing about drugs, given that there's hardly any drugs education in school. You know, the only thing that they're hearing is sort of hearsay from other yeah. other kids and and sort of bits of rumor, peer pressure. What's, what's his view as a thirteen-year-old? What does he think? Because um, that's as, you know, you can. We are, you know. I'm not sure what each adult. Forty-two. Is. Yeah, but we were forty-plus adults, forty-plus-year-old adults, and you know, it's a long time since we were at school. And things have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was at school, you know, I never heard of anyone using drugs. You know, but that's a long time ago. So, and and you know, so society has changed that way. And yeah, interesting to see what. He yeah, it, it was not. I was. I lived in a small town in Yorkshire, and so uh, I think maybe one teenage party at sort of sixth form age, there was a bit of cannabis, yeah. you know, that someone's older brother had, but it was just not on the radar. Uh, I feel it's the same as well for my son at the moment, in that he says, oh, yeah, some some kids go out vaping after school and, uh, and some kids smoke, uh, and I've heard them talk about weed, but, you know... He hasn't. I mean, uh, each episode, I'm sort of talking to him about a drug. What you know? Do you know where that comes from? What it looks like? What what is cocaine? And what have you? And so, you know, what I'm learning is that he hasn't heard of these things other than perhaps by name. But they're in lots of the you know drugs are mentioned in all the films he might watch. Or you know, so I sort of I don't want again. I don't want the only education that you have about drugs to lump everything in as one and make it all all based on a tiny bit of knowledge. Because I think my, my view of, say, a festival situation that you, the children might want to go to as 18-year-olds is that accidents happen there, tragic accidents, where people die because they're taking something that they've, they've no idea kind of what it is, because it's been bought illegally and, uh, and they've no idea how strong it is, or any of the sort of ways to take it more safely. And um, and I and I know you, you wouldn't condone drug use, but I think there are organisations on festival sites or what have you who will either test the drugs or will provide you with some calm information and welfare if you if you've taken too much of something. And and I sort of want him to just be aware of all of that, so that yeah. when you let them go out of your sight and go off to a festival or wherever, uh, and they're on their own, that they're not. They've, they've got a safety net with some information and some not. Oh, yeah, I remember my dad banging on about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose because those festivals, there's other factors come into it, like taking alcohol, dehydration, all those other yeah. additional elements that come into to the, the effects that drugs have. And I'm not a medical practitioner, you know, ultimately, um, things just, you know, you know, are we going to stop drugs going to festivals? Yeah, that would be great if we could. But I think the reality is that we, do we stop drugs going to pubs on a Friday night? Uh, probably not, but I mean, I know that the safety advisory groups at, at these festivals are now take, taking quite seriously and give you know people opportunities to, to to seek some help and you know, but ultimately, accidents happen, which is really sad. On the subject of alcohol, just uh, how much 
you know, because again, another thing which is often said uh, is that alcohol is a very harmful drug and causes a lot of harm beyond just the cirrhosis of the liver that you might give yourself by drinking it heavily. so lots of people do die every year from alcohol-related diseases, but it causes hundreds of thousands of hospital admissions from people being violent, yeah. abusive, uh, and you know, driving recklessly, doing all sorts of things. So in terms of the burden on the police, is alcohol more of a, of a pain than illegal drugs? Uh, I suppose it's different, isn't it? But, yeah, I mean, alcohol does... You know, we, we have... You know, police in terms, you know, we attend a lot of incidents that are fueled by alcohol, mm. you know, so there's no doubt about that. That, that. that causes, you know, a lot of work for us, you know, you know, as you say, violence and, yeah, you know, where, where do I start with that? So, you know, in terms of policing and, yeah. you know, alcohol does have an impact on, on our daily business and what we're called to, you know, whether that's domestic violence or, you know, a fight in the pub or a fight in the street. Um, you know, but that's how people choose to, to spend their time recreationally. And you know, I drink alcohol. I don't know if you yes, do, but yeah, I do you know, well. so, so it's just about trying to take it in moderation at times, isn't it? And, and and look after yourself. But it does the, the, that itself does cause uh, problems? Is it worse than drugs? It's probably, there's more people taking alcohol, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's taking drugs. That, that, that's clear. Um, because probably you and I, in our circle of friends. Most of them take alcohol, but I don't know any of them. My circle friends will sit and told me that, that that you know use use drugs with that. So so the, you know there's a much bigger part of the population you use alcohol, but at the same time, you know, my my friends don't get involved in in, in violence and other things. So it's uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really have a, an answer to that. The the war on drugs, you know, has been waged for since the seventies, I think, and it doesn't seem to have, although I think drug use is falling slightly in this country in recent years, so the use of illegal drugs is slightly falling, but they, clearly the money being made by these organised crime gangs is getting more and more, and actually the death rates in this country are going up, mm-hmm. worryingly. So is, is the war, do, do police, do you think, feel like they're fighting the good fight and making a difference with the war on drugs? Um, that, that, that is a, is a, a we, I mean, what, what is it, fundamentally what is our, our part in this is, is to, you know, one of the, you know, we, we talk about things that, that under four P's and you've seen this year's organised crime strategy and lots of home office type strategies prevent, talk about the four P's, you know, fundamentally the, the pursue element is something that the that, that police with some partners, law enforcement partners, that you know, border force, immigration force, that type of thing, um, you know, HMRC will get involved and attack on some of those organised crimes. But our, our our element is is, is to pursue. Um, but equally, we have a big, you know, our fortress campaign that we have in Hampshire is focused on protect as well as about identifying those vulnerable people that are that you know we, we didn't speak about cuckooed. Uh, you know, people who have been cuckooed in Portsmouth, you know, there's lots of them. So, right. drug users who are vulnerable adults will be cuckooed. And I think that's probably the one for me around that the public need to be aware of and looking for is those drug users who suddenly have a young. I mean, I'm not shying away from the fact that the, the, you know, the majority of people 
involved in county lines the trafficking tend to be young black males um, coming from gangs in London so suddenly you've got your next door neighbour who you know is a drug user and they have you know people coming and going from their address who, who are not known to them and sometimes that, that's and we're just about to have, have a campaign around that so to try and make the public aware that you know, there's a likelihood that, that that person could be getting cuckooed that's the terminology it's used for but cuckooed is basically you know, identifying somebody who's a vulnerable drug addict, mm. defending them, providing them with drugs to use their premises upon which to run your business from, to operate your business from. Not saying that people are going to keep coming and going from the address, but, you know, somebody will be probably leaving that yeah. address to go and supply drugs. So sometimes that will be actually using that vulnerable person to go and supply the drugs on their behalf. You know, so that's something that we, that, that does have an impact on us in terms of that harm. Um, and so I've got a tangent. So what was the question? Again? And it was about whether whether the police feel they're they're making oh, yeah, they're making a dent into the. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we always feel you know we you know the, the drug trade as as I mentioned earlier is controlled by the demand. So there's always going to be somebody ready to step in uh, yeah. to, to fill a void, but. You know, we, we will relentlessly pursue people involved in that in drug trafficking, especially that harmful drug trafficking around heroin crack. Um, and you know, you don't have to look in, in Portsmouth, for example. Recently, we've had a lot of people who have been involved in what we would consider to be county lines that have had significant, you know, uh, imprisonment, which is you know five, six, seven years. You know, so. <clears throat> That, that, that's what that's what we're here for. That's what I would anticipate the public would expect us to do: is to take action. The general public take action against those that are involved in it. But I would rather see us in a position where we could actually reduce the demand. If we could work with our partners to try and reduce the demand for people wanting drugs. Now I look back to my my times twenty plus years ago on a drug squad, and you know it was again demand. You know, you would take out one drug dealer, and then somebody else would step into yeah. the marketplace because. You know, it's a business, and there's a marketplace that somebody's there's a void there. We're going to step in and make money out of that marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's fundamentally it comes down to that demand. You know, until until we reduce the the need for drugs and class A drugs, um, we're always going to have people stepping in. So, but yeah, if you spoke to our guys that are involved in it, you know, they, they take pride in what they do. They take pride in. Uh, trying to um, find those involved in, in, in that illicit market. Is it not demoralising when, like you say, the, the gap is is immediately filled by some, someone else? And you think I didn't stop the flow of drugs for, for very long. I don't. I don't think the. I don't think the officers find it demoralising. They just. They. They will, will. It's just part of our job. We see it as part of our job to. Yeah. To you know, you know, you expect it's like it's like when a. A response officers are out dealing with calls so they'll, just go, they'll deal with one call and then they'll expect to deal with another call and they'll expect to deal with another call for service for the police and I suppose it's a little bit like that um, but you know that if you, if you if you can you know severely disrupt an organised crime gang then it does, ha- it does have a, it does have an impact mm. it does have an impact and when you talk about demand so I think it seems to be in two two worlds the the drug world. There is, like you say, the the heroin and crack market is worth most, isn't it? It's 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 the most lucrative, and uh, you've got these this hardcore of I think about three hundred thousand or so heroin and crack dependent people in the UK who consume 
at more than three quarters of the money's worth of drugs because their habit is is so um, constant. And so that's where the big money is. But like that doesn't affect most people in the in the country, does it? And and then you've got drugs like cannabis or ecstasy, uh, powder cocaine, where it's people using those for recreational reasons on a kind of moderate level most mostly and then, you know and you've got some countries states in america what have you legalizing some of those substances or decriminalizing them to make money out of them as a, as a government and so on. so i suppose there's different approaches to, to changing the demand is what i, I suppose I'm, I'm getting to what we used to do in this country was give prescriptions to heroin dependent people didn't we and, and then um, try and work with them to so they didn't have to commit crimes to pay a dealer to get that heroin it is the is the demand control really? It's not the police's job, is it? It's, it needs for well, other structures. I see. There's talk about that, that whole system. You know, it's, it's about you know you, your son's thirteen. Mm. You know, so what, what what are we doing to educate him at thirteen? You know, what what are we doing in schools to educate them? What's what's part of their life growing up in school that will educate them about the dangers of being involved in drugs? But it's not just drugs; it's all forms of exploitation that come with that. Um, so yes, you know, and you know, health will get a part to play in terms of trying to reduce the the, the demand and, and divert people away. And and I'm not sure what, if anyone's come up with that sort of the magic answer. But what, when are we going to stop it? Um, you know, they, they offer drug treatment programs in prison. They offer drug treatment programs as part of an outcome court. Um, and you know, but ultimately, it's about. It's about the person, isn't it? I think it's about that person wanting to to change, wanting to change life and move on. Um, and I don't think that there's probably lots of good um, examples of people who have, you know, come off drugs, become clean, change their life around. And uh, you know, I take my hats off to people like that, you know, because you know, well done. Because I'm sure that's a really, really difficult journey that they've been on. Um, but. What, what is the magic answer for that? And I think that's what we're all seeking to find. And, and we can only do that together. It's not just the police, it's not just health, it's everybody who's got to be involved in that, that whole system to sort of target that. And I know the government, I think, have, have commissioned recently a, a, a sort of cross-sector review of, of uh, drug supply and... And, and programs. Yes, I forgot the name Baroness. Somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'll, I'll, you know, from my point of view, I've got you know, because I've been over the years been involved in it, and you know, has has the marketplace changed in, in twenty years? I'm really sure it has changed that much. You know, really not. Um, but the you know, so, so we do, we need to do something you know together. There's this worrying trend of of more drug deaths in in just the last few years. And that, um, from what I've read, seems to be down to uh, increased purity and, and lack of um, lack of knowing what you're testing. So uh, knowing what you're taking, so you end up taking something far stronger than you're anticipating. And, and but the but the actual prevalence of drug use seems to be slightly going down. Um, and then you've got other countries, obviously legalising. Um, cannabis mainly or decriminalising that in the case of Portugal and they haven't seen soaring drug uptake in those in those places where, where that happens so do you anticipate, do, I guess does the police plan for and anticipate well probably in the next five years the UK might legalise recreational cannabis then what will our approach be? Yeah. 
Um, why well, I, I can't, as I said before, that's not, that's not really a, an issue for me. Scott McKechnie's got a view. Yeah, right. I'll probably keep that to myself. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we we have to uphold the law that that's put in place by by the government. So I think that that may be one of the things that gets discussed as part of that review. Yeah, it might well be. I would imagine it probably will. We can't we we can't probably. It's right to have that conversation uh, as a society around it. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting, I suppose, they'll probably look at the countries that you've just mentioned there, Bob, around, you know, what what was the outcome there. But, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, nothing sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, when you're involved in policing, health, education, to see somebody's life taken by a drugs overdose is, is, is sad. You know, and, and everybody, especially when it involves children, that's probably the one that sort of impacts on you the most. Um, and and that's when you realise that you know it's wrong. You know, and that probably that probably gives us you know um, you know we it, you know get kind of spurs on you know what we we have to do to try and tackle this problem together. You know, and you know, our, our fortress approach is very very proactive. You know, so we get information about somebody who's involved in cocaine or vulnerable adult or a child involved in trafficking, and we will you know we won't wait. We'll we'll go out and be very proactive and overt about what we're doing to try and find those individuals and, and take action and try and take that opportunity to disrupt, to disrupt but also divert that person from being involved or that vulnerable adult whose address is being used try and you know, prevent those there's various powers that we can use to, to prevent people to come into that address um, uh, so yeah, we, we will constantly do that, and that's about the harm. That's come back to that harm reduction, you know. So you've got you've got that middle market, you know, cannabis, you know, powder cocaine, ecstasy. It's a slightly different market when you look at it. Um, slightly different people involved in that. I'm not saying the people who take powder cocaine don't take heroin. They might dabble at it sometimes, but not all of them do. Um, and you know, that's equally equally profitable. You know, but because of you know our, our focus is on harms so that we always you know look at that sort of um, harm approach and where the opportunities are to, to take action against the harm. So, and unfortunately, it's well publicised. But I'm not blaming you know uh, taking money out of policing over the years. But but we have to then prioritise what yeah. we use our resources to do. So our resources are, are focused on what we would consider to be that highest harm. Um, so um, I'm not saying that we don't focus on those other types of activities because we do, um, but you know we we have to prioritise. Um, so our processes are aligned to prioritising where the highest harm is. Yeah. So the the, the the heroin, the crack dealing rather than you know people taking ecstasy at a nightclub. You know the harm is is in the is yeah. in the dealing on the streets and the cuckooing and yeah so and, and you know. And I'm not sure the stats around the, the drug-related deaths, um, but um, it's much higher in heroin and yeah. the opiate deaths. Yeah. So in the thousands, yeah. whereas you know it's sort of 53 people in the, in the yeah. last year from from ecstasy. Yeah. I think so. so. So that's our harm, isn't it? It's trying to to prevent that happening. Yeah, I'm probably trying to understand it as well, and that should be part of this sort of prevention work is understanding why that's happening and. and if somebody's going down that path, and I'm sure health do this, I'm sure health work and some of the drug addiction teams work with their users around this is to, you know, to try and make the use as safe as they can. If you're going to use, then, you know, like use as safe, safely as you can um, to prevent that loss of life. Um, some knife crime has become obviously a massive uh, story, a uh, massive 
thing in people's lives in the last few months, really, it seems to have uh, soared. Is it drug-connected, do you think? Uh, some of it will be. Yeah, some of it will be connected to drug-related harm, no doubt about that. Um, there's uh, been stabbings in, there's one in Portsmouth in Stamshaw in recent months there's one in, in a park in Southampton uh, and is that sort of connected to county lines and that sort of um, I don't think we can make that direct link, some of it might be um, in fact some, some of it will be but there's also other stabbings that go on use of knives, I mean I think that's again an our society issue Karen, it's, you know, I think it's only just under a fifth of our Knife-related crime relates to domestic violence and hardship. Okay. Um, and then you've got you know street robberies where knives are used. And um, but it's when someone makes that conscious decision to you know there's a difference. You know for me it's about when somebody makes a conscious decision to take a knife or mm. put it in the pocket or put it in the waistband when they walk outside the house. And and why are they doing that? And and it's it's horrific to see children doing that. And I suppose London, uh, you know. Doesn't always come out. Is it always gang related? Is it not? Is it some other types of crime types that cause it? Um, and it's and it's being reported on a lot now uh, in the media about the, the, the gang culture, the, the knife crime. But I don't think it all comes down to drugs. Yeah, some of it does clearly, but there's other wider issues. Why why are kids carrying knives on the streets? Yeah. Um, and, and that again that comes down to what you're trying to understand why it is that, that child makes that decision to carry a knife it's not cool yeah. I don't think it's cool but, but do they think it's cool I don't know um, to carry a blade I've just got two more questions uh, and then I'll let you go to your dentist appointment um, thank you for your time this morning um, so my first one is has it got harder and less pleasant being a police officer over the, your time in the force do you uh, think you know, when you talk about the way things, the way, you know, the way society has changed and people's approach to knives or to yeah. drugs, so on. I know when I look back when I joined the police, well, I was given a, a, a small wooden baton, which makes me sound really old. But, <laughs> you know, and so so the way police officers look has changed. I think that you know, you know, given knife fists, you know, that type of personal protection equipment is 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 a really good thing for police officers because unfortunately people. You know, take a lot of frustrations out of the police, um, and you know people don't want the police to, to intervene and arrest people. So, has it become more unpleasant? I don't know. I, I still have the same passion uh, now uh, for policing that I did when I joined. In terms of actually, there's actually a lot of people out there that we're, that we're here to help, mm. and, um, and and I'm sure most police officers join the job with the same intentions about. You know, trying to help the public, protect the public. Um, so, yeah, policing changes, but so does everything changes, doesn't it? Over the years, and society's definitely changed over the years. Um, so, but but fundamentally, you know, over the last sort of five or six years, there's been a lot of money taken out of policing, a lot of money taken out of all the other uh, public services that we work in partnership with. Um, you know, from from the government, I, I don't have a, you know, I've not got a view on, on the reasons for that, but um, it does ha- has impacted on policing. You know, we have got less police officers in Hampshire now than what we had right. uh, five years ago, and a significantly less amount. Of, I mean, you can't take ninety million pounds of a budget of a small budget and expect it not to have an impact. Um, so that's why I said earlier, we really have to be um, focused and probably the public. We, we we're maybe not dealing with things that we previously would have um, uh, for, for the public, and, and I can understand the public's frustrations there sometimes around that. And that that's probably makes it harder for us. 
because we have less people, we can do less things. Yeah. And um, and as police officers, you want to do more. You want to try. And if somebody's house has been broken into, absolutely, we will focus our attentions on that to try and capture who's responsible. But there's other other types of crimes that we we, we might not know uh, or where we would have done maybe five, ten years ago. Right. And that comes down to austerity. Don't talk about that because it's yeah, it's, it's it's hard for police officers as well. Yeah, hard to take. I'm yeah. sure. And and one thing, just because this is a, a podcast for uh, for me as a parent and talking to to my son and for other parents, I think if my child doing all right at school, uh, whatever you know, not a criminal child, but um, is caught for some reason with uh, drugs on them, so uh, with with. You know, cannabis or something. What what would what would the process be? What what's going to happen for that child and and me as the parent uh, generally in in Hampshire? You know, if yeah, well, well we we would we would obviously take some form of action, but mm. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be formal action. You know, you can get cannabis warnings, you can get community resolution. So if it was that type of example where a child, so it would be about then us. How can we work with you as a parent? Right. Um, and and with education schools to say like, like try and divert your child and support him, her from yeah. being involved involved in, in using drugs and I suppose educate them on the dangers and educate them on you know what's unlawful, unlawful in the country as it stands just now. And uh, but it wouldn't be to try and ostracise them. It wouldn't be to try and uh, you know prosecute them. That that certainly wouldn't be. So that's why we have a much more focused on out-of-court disposals right. and trying to divert children away um, sort of from being involved in drugs. Um, but at the same time, you know, educate them on, on, on the dangers that, you know, if they're using cannabis, what's what's next if they, if they go down that, that, that route. Um, and, yeah, so, so it wouldn't be, you know, I, I, I want to be clear that, that you know, we are here, we will prosecute people who are involved in it, but as I said earlier, we're looking at those people involved in the highest harm and highest impact. So a child using cannabis, it'll be very much about why you're doing that, trying to divert you away from doing that. We certainly would be looking to take action uh, formally against children and, and, and it would be about working with parents yeah. and allowing parents to uh, support that child and divert them away from, from using drugs. Thank you very much for your time. That's great. Really interesting. So we're, um, we're four episodes in now, aren't we? Yeah, this is the fourth one that we're doing. How are you finding the whole process? Um, good, 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 good. Are you still enjoying it? Yeah. Finding it interesting? Definitely. And do you, after listening to that interview with Scott, still fancy the idea of being a detective? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I just don't know. It's, that hasn't hurt anything now. Um, I think what I don't want to do in a model, that's kind of just what comes into my mind, I guess. Did you like what you had to say? Did you find it? Did you think, oh yeah, that sounds fun, that sounds exciting and... You know. mm, kind of, yeah. I mean, he didn't talk loads about... Police you know, work. Police work that he's done, but he... Um, there's a sort of a way that I think if you're in the forces or if you're in the police, there's a way of talking, there's a way of uh, looking at life. It makes you very ordered and evidence-based, factual. You're very straight to the point, confident... You're used to working in a, a team where people know the hierarchy and respond and do their jobs and things like that. Yeah. And I'm a bit of a, obviously a bit wishy-washy. I work in the media and it's a bit, sometimes a bit 
floaty and airy-fairy. There isn't quite that same level of straightforward orders and response and what have you. So I found it a bit of a jar sometimes to talk to someone like that. It's quite blunt when you get a response from someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do respect it. And I wanted to be in the uh, military when I was younger, so... Yeah, I less like the idea of military, to be honest, because, like, I don't know, it just never really appealed to me as much. Yeah, when I was thinking about it was the mid-90s, and at that point, I suppose the first Gulf War had happened, but I think there was still a sense that you could be in the British military and not have to fight in a war very often, or... You weren't in danger, but, like, you still get to do... Exciting stuff, yeah. 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 Whereas now, in your lifetime, there's been so many terror attacks and insurgencies in Middle Eastern countries where we've had to deploy troops and things like that. They just feel like a deadly profession these days. I can't understand that. How do you think you would change becoming a police officer? Do you think, because you're sort of so mild-mannered and what have you now, I can't imagine you having that sort of (laughs) harsh edge that... They just don't take. They just. Uh, there's no shades of grey with the with the police. It, it's. Very, I think it's like I blunt. think in like. Sometimes I can like just think in that kind of way where like, you know, just. Yes, you're yes, you're very, black and white about things sometimes. Yeah. Aren't you? you like the, you like the, things to be evidence based and factual. So. He didn't express too much personal opinion throughout the whole thing. It was much more, this is what the police do, this is what the police think. Yeah, it's not he thinks, it's what the police think. Yes, it was very official, the party line he was towing the whole time. But I did find that just towards the end when he was talking about the lack of, or the cutting of recent funding in in recent years under our current government, this austerity period when the police have had their budgets cut, I could tell that he was pretty upset about all of that yeah pretty annoyed frustrated they can't respond to as many crimes and um uh, so i think it's hard work being a police officer these days yeah there's less police officers but was there anything that um stood out to you that um you thought was interesting about these the war on drugs about the things that he thinks and the things that they do um like the war on drugs thing i don't know i just like that's not one of like I, I just don't really know to be honest about the war on drugs thing. It's kind of just not something I'm very informed of, I guess. No. Not something that I feel passionate about. No. Where someone else will be like, oh yeah, that's affecting me. I don't, I don't want to fight that. It's not something that's like that. No. So I don't really have a connection to it in the way. So I can't really like. No, I just I just think after speaking to that guy Mohammed Kazim last week, who was looking at the criminal gangs. You know, he is looking at these teenagers and thinking, these are poor teenagers from crappy situations who need a leg up in society. You know, they need some kind of system to care for them and get them out of this situation. Yeah. The police just have to do what the government tells them in law, and that is to arrest people who have illegal drugs on them. So that's what they do. But I, I thought that scott even he was thinking and he says you know we don't want to arrest kids but if they do find a kid who is dealing heroin they've got to arrest him because he's got heroin on him and yeah it's just the law yeah 
But I, I got the impression that even he thought we're the wrong tool to be trying to fix this problem. The police is well, the wrong... Well, it's the child problem. Yes. But also, I think, um, when he said right at the end, when I asked him about what would happen if, like you, got caught in a few years' time with some cannabis in your pocket, what would happen? And he, he even then said, well, we wouldn't want to give someone a criminal record. That would be ridiculous. We don't want to give a 16-year-old a criminal record for having some cannabis in their pocket. And I think, personally, in a few years' time, it will be legalised in the UK like it is in Canada already and Uruguay already and Luxembourg already and it's decriminalised in Portugal already uh, because... What's the difference between decriminalised and legalised? Good question. Um, decriminalised just means you won't get arrested for it but it's not... You, you can't legally get it anywhere. So you it's have... It's just a great area. Uh, no, you, so you have to buy it from a dealer still. That, that's, that would be where you get it. It's illegal to buy it still. But if, if someone is found with it on them, then they won't give you, they won't arrest you. They'll probably confiscate it. What they do in Portugal is that you have to go and see, you, if they found you on a Friday night with some cannabis in your pocket, up to no good, they'd confiscate the cannabis, say, you need to report on Monday morning to the health centre. And you go and have a chat with the person in the health centre who sort of says, are you using this a lot? Is it affecting your schoolwork? And if you say, no, I have it a bit of it on a Friday night with my mates, they say, okay, well, just don't do it any more than that and off you go. If it's legal, if it's legal legalised, then that means you can buy it legally. So then yeah, shops just... start selling it or pharmacies or, or whatever. Um, and in Canada, you know, you can go in and buy it from different places. So uh, and that way the government can make some money in tax off it and things like that. And that is, I think, the answer. The two things I would think that would make the police's job loads easier is if you legalised cannabis, so then they don't have to chase around kids dealing it and kids smoking it, and they just make it a regulated market like, like alcohol. Yeah, like alcohol or cigarettes. You could be behind the thing like cigarettes are. Yeah. I would have an age restriction like... Yeah. It'll basically be like cigarettes. It would just yeah. be another way to smoke. It would be another way to smoke, but it's a, a way to smoke something that is less harmful than tobacco. And they could sell it slightly cheaper than it would be buying it from a dealer. So then it would hopefully stop some of the illegal dealing. And you could buy a mild version of it. So you wouldn't get completely stoned out of your head and feel awful. You could just smoke a, a sort of mild version of it. And you can even vape cannabis. In, in California, you know, you can... You can vape cannabis, so you, you can have that kind of high stone feeling without having to actually smoke something. Uh, and the government can tax it and make some money out of it. And then the other thing that would make the police's job, someone like Scott's job, loads easier, is if you legalised heroin. And the heroin addicts who have a real problem with it, you would um, get them to go and get heroin from the doctor basically they would have a prescription yeah, yeah. to go and get it and then as part of that program they could relax and know that they were getting their heroin every day from the doctor they went along uh, you don't give it out to anyone else you're just the people with a problem a doctor identifies them and says yes they have got a problem hmm. and then they go along every day and they get their prescription and they can have heroin so then they stop committing crime to get the heroin and they stop getting the diseases from injecting poor quality heroin and 
they can start to rebuild their lives and get yeah you know get some social work care and to talk to them about the you know the problems in their life that have led them to be homeless and injecting heroin in the first place so i reckon that those two things legalizing those two things would just mean the police could concentrate what resources they have on preventing other crimes and keeping other areas of society safer it would just i mean yeah i felt like he he was saying the saying the things that he's kind of officially got to say but it doesn't all add up they don't have enough money to answer all the calls that the public wants them to answer and some of the things they're having to do aren't really that criminal you know aren't aren't harming anyone aren't that dangerous so why is it even a crime to smoke why is it a crime to smoke cannabis in your house if it's not a crime to smoke tobacco in your house if it's not yeah. a crime to drink alcohol it's sort of I, I just don't think it makes sense personally and i think some of the police work makes the criminals more violent and more uh, you know they have to be more underhand and more violent and more aggressive protecting their market because the police are are chasing them and i just um i just don't think it works really yeah they should be like on things that actually hurt people to be honest like just yeah things that are harming public yes yeah i i think so so i mentioned you in that podcast did i put words in your mouth do kids yes actually talk about smoking weed down the alley as i sort of said in an offhand way yeah they do uh, yeah I, I mean just talked about yeah it is okay I, I thought you'd mentioned it but um and do you think they actually are doing it or do you think it's just i think kids some talking? of them i think it's just they talk about drugs and say oh this person this place does drugs i think blah blah, blah. but like yeah that's about it i think it's always worth remembering that most of what they do just said is exaggerated or a thousand percent of teenagers exaggerate wildly was that a response to a hilarious dad joke (laughs) um yeah but i'm sure there is a i'm sure as as you go through your teenage years living in a town a city like portsmouth there will be some drug taking but I mean, yeah. It's a bit like teenagers talking about sex or teenagers talking about how cool their life is, how great <laughs> they're, you know, well, you know, they'll always exaggerate. You know, there'll always be kids saying they do more than actually is true. I thought it was good that he said a relief that uh, if any friends you know, if you at any time do get caught with some cannabis in your pocket, you're very unlikely to get arrested. Yeah. That was a relief to me, uh, and I'm sure it might be to other parents. But um, there's just something about being spoken to by the police about anything that makes you feel scared. I don't mm-hmm. think it would be a pleasant thing if you got caught with your mates up to no good and they and, you know, they made you empty your pockets and found some drugs. I think they would make you feel like you were, your life was about to end, even if it wasn't. Mm-hmm. One of the facts, you know, we've been looking at Dave, uh, David Nutt's book and the thing, his sort of cast iron rules about drugs, you know, things to tell your kids. And one of his things is what I said to Scott in that episode is that a criminal record is a really bad aspect that comes out of drugs. Yeah, you know, one of yeah. the key harms from illegal drugs is that they're illegal and a criminal record could have a big, prob- a big negative effect on your life, could ruin your career 
So even if you're, even if as a result of doing this podcast, I, I feel like I disagree with some of the drug laws and drug policy in this country now. It doesn't mean that I'm exempt from the law just because I disagree with them. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean you should go out like breaking the law and doing drugs and. No, the police. Because it's wrong. Yes, the police will still enforce the law even if I disagree with it. Yeah, even if that police officer there disagrees with it, they can't just go like, well, sorry. No, exactly. One thing that might be relevant, particularly to you know your generation, is um, it's easy to get caught out by social media and. Um, posting pictures of things so you know <laughs> yeah I'm sure you know of stories of people posting pictures of things that they've been embarrassed about or whatever and you know someone posts a picture and in the background there's something that everyone then takes the piss out of them for just because it was something embarrassing that was in the background of a picture of of them or their room or something and if if you post a picture of yourself or or anyone and illegal drugs are in the picture or you're doing drugs then you could get arrested. Just you know, it's a terrible, you know, that is a very. Like I've been looking at Instagram and I've literally just seen a picture of this guy smoking weed. Yeah, I'm and sure. He's about my age. Like, right. I think he's in my year. He just doesn't come to school. Oh really? Yeah, and he's just got pictures of like he's, he's one of them. He's just smoking, not smoking weed. It's just like right. what are you doing. Yeah. Well, um, from our conversation with the police, I don't, you know, I don't think they're going to be rushing around his house, banging down his door, but. If he's already missing school, then social services will be paying him a visit, and then if they will be looking at something like his social media, going, okay, on these days when he was supposed to be at school, there's pictures of him, you know, at places that aren't the school, and now we've seen pictures of him with what looks like drugs, you know, it all paints a pretty negative picture. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty bad thing to do. Could but it's just kind of, can I avoid, like... <laughs> He is a kid you avoid. Uh, obviously, yeah, I would never. Yeah, well, I think that is a big part. A big part of navigating your way through life is sort of having a good crowd around you, having good mates, and it helps you make better decisions if you're not if you've not fallen in with a dodgy bunch. Oh yeah, yeah. Just that you feel that even whoever you fall in with, because even you know, a bad crowd's a bit of a. Yeah, that's a bit of a kind of sweeping statement. No one, yeah, it's a bit of a general term. No yeah, one's bad. Exactly, no one's bad. But um, what what I think is the key thing is that your whoever your mates are, whoever the crowd that you hang around is, is you need to have com- confidence as a as a person that you can make your own decisions and yeah back out of things if you think actually I don't really want to do this. Thanks. Whatever it yeah, is. I'm definitely in the position that I could do that. Yeah, you can just say, no thanks, I'm going home now, or whatever, whether it's drugs or whether it's, you know, stealing stuff, trespassing, doing something you just feel uncomfortable with, making racist jokes, doing something, you know, unpleasant, being mean, bullying, whatever. You yeah. Because those sort of, loads of those behaviours just become, oh, it's just a joke, mate, just a joke. And just like that. Just... Yeah, if it, if it makes you feel uncomfortable whatever it is so that can be your joke <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's kind you, of my attitude with this like you can get out as long as you feel that you can get out and think no i don't want to do that thanks and that's good great thanks for talking again yeah anytime. so yeah the next episode might be a tough one to listen to uh it'd be really different so it's a woman called wendy teasdale who i went to meet she lives in glastonbury in somerset 
and I went to meet her. Her daughter died at a festival near us, Boomtown Festival, which takes place near Winchester in August each year. And her daughter died there in 2013. And oh. So it was really tough. I've, you know, I don't, I, I, find, you know, I find conversations with people who, about... Loss. Yeah, loss, uh, anything really, you know, even if just someone just is feeling sad or a bit ill, uh, I've got bad news, you know, I find it com- uncomfortable sometimes. So this was quite me out of my comfort zone, but she was, um, Definitely. yeah, it's hard, but she was um, really interesting and it was an amazing story. And the drug that her daughter Ellie died because she took uh, is one called ketamine, which we've not talked about before so uh, we'll do that in the next episode thank you very much to detective superintendent scott mckechnie of hampshire constabulary he was really interesting and as honest as he could be i think and i really enjoyed talking to him one of the things that I really felt he needed and I think he was hinting at the fact that he needed was support from politicians to make laws which are enforceable by the police and a politician that I'm talking to who also wants that is called Norman Lamb and in a few episodes time he's a former health minister for the Lib Dems and he was putting um, a motion through parliament a 10 minute rule bill he'll explain what that is as well in a few episodes time uh, to try and get cannabis uh, legalized Uh, he wants drug policy reform as well so we'll we'll get the other side of the um, argument from him do keep keeping in touch at Dad Does Drugs on Twitter, daddoesdrugs at gmail.com if you want to send me an email, uh, and you can find Dad Does Drugs on Facebook as well. Uh, the music in this episode was from my new favourite band of the moment, Foles, a whole set of instrumentals of their new album. Lovely. Thanks very much. I'll speak to you next week. Bye. Bye.